Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So those disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So often, people make one mistake, and that mistake follows them for a pretty substantial amount of time. So often, a person will do or say one wrong thing, and that follows them. It defines them, maybe for years to come, maybe even for the rest of their lives. I'm thinking about one particular individual who I went to elementary school with, back in Middle Tennessee. It was in third grade. We were walking down the hallway in a line coming back from lunch, and the teacher got on to him for talking in the hallway. He got so mad that the teacher got on to him for talking, he put his head back as far as he could, and with as much force as he could gather, brought his head forward right into the cinder block wall in front of him. Now, all of us were were shocked, even the teacher. Nobody said anything. It was silent. You could have heard a pin drop after that sound of his head hitting the cinder block wall. All eyes were on him when he threw up his hands and said, that didn't even hurt. From that point forward, he was known as the kid with the hardest head. And because we were so amazed by that, we would try to get him to hit his head on different things to see if it would ever hurt. I mean, you name it, he hit his head on it. Playground equipment, desk, the trays that you have in the lunchroom, computers. I think he probably hit his head on every wall inside of the school building because we were so amazed we would put him up to it. He did one thing and it caused him to do it again and again and again. He hit his head one time and that caused him to hit his head many, many, many times times it's like what we said just a moment ago people do one wrong thing and it follows them for a substantial amount of time this is a k-8 through school we were in third grade at the time he was known until we left that school in eighth grade as the kid who has the hardest head people make one mistake one wrong move and it follows them for many years to come maybe even the rest of their lives I think William Shakespeare said it well in his very famous play called Julius Caesar. He says, The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft entered with their bones. You understand what Shakespeare is saying there? The evil that people do, the mistakes that people make, will never be forgotten. People are always going to remember the wrong things that other people do. In contrast to that, the good things that people do are oftentimes, if not always, forgotten about and left in the past. I believe that is exactly what's happened to the character who we're going to spend some time talking about this morning from the Scriptures. This character, this individual, this man who we're going to spend some time talking about, he made one mistake 
And that mistake has followed him for 2,000 years. His identity has been wrapped up inside of this one moment of weakness. He made this one mistake. And now his name is synonymous with that mistake. We don't even mention his name without bringing up this wrong decision that he made. This morning we're going to spend some time talking about an individual who we oftentimes call Doubting Thomas. That nickname, Doubting Thomas, comes from our Scripture reading. What we read just a few moments ago from John 20, verses 24 and 25, when you look at this in context, Jesus has just risen from the dead. He rose on the third day. He appeared to His apostles for the first time when they were gathered together in the upper room with the doors locked. John, who was an eyewitness of this occasion, in verse 24, says Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. At that time, the ten apostles were together, but Thomas, for whatever reason, wasn't present when Jesus appeared to them. And so notice what happens in verse 25. I imagine the apostles were pretty excited. What about you? I imagine that they were jumping up and down and when they went to find Thomas, they had a big smile on their face. They could hardly contain their excitement. Thomas, you're never going to believe it. You know that Jesus died. You know that He was buried. But look at the announcement in 25. We have seen the Lord. He's appeared to us. He has risen from the dead. How does Thomas respond? Look at 25. But He said to them, unless I see in His hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into His side, I will never believe. In that statement, is Thomas guilty of doubt? Did he earn that nickname, Doubting Thomas? I think he did. We can't deny that he's doubting here. He's doubting the resurrection of Jesus. He's doubting that the other apostles had actually seen Jesus. He's demanding proof. He says, unless I see the marks on his hands and the mark in his side. But it's not just about seeing it. He says, unless I touch the marks in his hands and the mark on his side. He's very emphatic. I will never believe. If this doesn't happen, if I don't see the marks, if I don't touch the marks with my own hands, then I'm never going to believe that Jesus Christ appeared to you. We cannot deny that Thomas was guilty of doubt. Even though that's the case, even though Thomas is guilty of doubting the resurrection of Jesus, this morning I want to provide a defense for doubting Thomas. We have taken just one singular moment in his life. We've taken one mistake. We've taken one wrong decision and wrapped up his identity in that. He is defined by one moment of weakness. I think that's a mistake on our part. When we do that, we're not seeing the man who he actually was. The follower of Jesus that he actually was. When we wrap him up in just that one moment of weakness. I want us to see this morning, Thomas is so much more than just that one moment. Thomas, his life, his relationship with Jesus is so much more than just doubt. And I want us to see that from the Scriptures to provide a defense for doubting Thomas. The first thing that I want us to see about Thomas is that he was called by Jesus. If you go to Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse number 13, Jesus goes up on top of a mountain and notice He called to Him 
those who He desired and they came to Him. Who is Jesus calling there? Who are the individuals coming to Jesus in verse 13? Well, He explains it to us in the next verse. Verse 14. He appointed twelve whom He also named apostles. And it goes on to talk about the purpose of the apostles. Here, Jesus is calling twelve men to come and meet Him on top of this mountain. And He's appointing them to be His twelve apostles. You skip down just a little bit to Mark chapter 3 and verse number 18. Notice the name that you find about midway through that verse. It's Thomas. Thomas was one of the twelve individuals. Out of all the disciples that Jesus had at this time, Thomas was one of the twelve individuals who was called by Jesus. We find the same idea in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1-4, through beginning in verse 1, that He called to Him His twelve disciples. Once again, skip down to verse number 3, and you're going to find the name Thomas. Thomas was called by Jesus. Called to be one of His apostles. I believe that same principle is true for you and me. When we look throughout the rest of the New Testament, we find that we have been called by Jesus. We've been called into relationship with Jesus. I think about 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9, how we have been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Called out of darkness and into God's marvelous, excellent light. 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 12 talks about how we have been called to eternal life and we're commanded to take hold of that eternal life to which we have been called. Galatians 5 and verse number 13 says that we have been called to freedom, liberty from our sins, from the mistakes that we've made. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 9, we're called into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15, God has called us not to division or bickering or fighting. God has called us to peace. 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, God has called us into His own glory and into His own excellence. He's called us to share in His glory, to share in His excellence. And then we ask the question, how has God called us? God hasn't called us through a mysterious dream or vision or experience. God has not called us on the telephone or anything like that. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse number 14 says that God calls us through the Gospel. Every time that the Gospel is preached, every time that the good news is proclaimed, that is God calling us deeper and deeper into relationship with Himself. Deeper and deeper into His grace and into His love. Thomas is more than just doubt. This first idea, he was called by Jesus, and that same idea is true for us. Number two, the second thing that I want to mention about Thomas and his life is that he was also chosen by Jesus. If you go to Luke's account of what we just saw in Mark chapter 3 and also Matthew chapter 10, Luke records in verse 13 of chapter 6, when day came, he called his disciples, that's Jesus, and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Like we said, Jesus would have had a lot of different disciples, a lot of different people who had signed up to be His students, to be His followers at this point. Out of all of those disciples, Jesus doesn't just call twelve, He chose twelve. He handpicked them. He hand-selected them. Well, drop down to verse number 15. You find that Thomas is one of those individuals who was chosen by Jesus. Thomas was called by Jesus. He was chosen by Jesus. And once again, the same is true for you and me. You and I, as followers of Christ, have been chosen by Him. 
The New Testament teaches us that in a number of different places. First, in Colossians 3 and verse 12, we're called God's chosen ones. We are those whom God has chosen. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, we talked about the bottom of that verse, the end of it just a moment ago. Notice the beginning. You are a chosen race. Then you go over to Titus chapter 1 and verse number 1, and we are called God's elect. He talks about the faith of God's elect, those who God has elected, those who God has chosen. And then in Ephesians 1 and verse number 4, I think it's stated really clearly here that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now this is not the idea that God has chosen certain people to be saved and chosen certain people to be lost and there's really not anything we can do about that. This is communicating to us that God has chosen He's going to have a group of people who belong to Him. God has chosen. He's going to have a group of people who are saved and cleansed by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. You and I have had the awesome privilege of choosing to step into that group that was predestined from before the foundation of the world. Thomas has been called by Jesus. He's been chosen by Jesus. Number three, Thomas has been commissioned by Jesus. We go back for just a moment to Mark 3, verses 14 and 15. Remember, Jesus went up on top of the mountain. He called those whom He desired. In verse 14, He appointed twelve whom He also named apostles. That's not just a title that these men are taking on. As they are given the title apostle, they are commissioned to do certain things. Notice in, in verse 14, so that they might be with Him. First, Thomas was commissioned to be with Jesus. When we look at his life, he spent time with Jesus. For three, three and a half years, he went everywhere that Jesus went. Every waking moment was spent with Jesus. He sat at Jesus' feet and listened to Jesus' teaching. But it's not just about being with Jesus. Also, he says the second thing, that he might send them out to preach. Thomas was commissioned not just to be with Jesus, but to go out and tell other people about Jesus. To preach about Jesus and His kingdom. What Jesus expects from people. And then you look in 15, you find the third thing that Thomas was commissioned to do. He was given Jesus' authority to miraculously cast out demons. It's not just casting out demons though. In Matthew 10 and verse number 1, the Bible says that Thomas had the ability to heal not just some, every disease and every affliction that he was confronted with. Thomas called, chosen by Jesus, but also commissioned by Jesus to be with Him, to preach about Him, to share in His authority, to work miracles on behalf of Jesus, in Jesus' name, and by Jesus' authority. Even after Thomas doubts, in Matthew 28, verses 18-20, through 20, once again, he was commissioned by Jesus. Jesus is calling the, tw- the ten at this point to Himself, the eleven rather, Judas is not present here, he's uh, already died at this point. But when you look at verse number 18, He's calling them to Himself on top of a mountain in Galilee. And here's what He says. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore, here's the commission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Thomas was not just called. He wasn't just chosen. He was commissioned by Jesus to go out and make a difference in the world. The same thing is true for us, isn't it? 
I believe that Jesus has given to us the same commission that He gave to Thomas in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Pause and ask yourself the question for just a second. What is our purpose as Christians? What are we supposed to be all about? What is our goal? What are we set on? What are we intent on? Jesus tells us, make disciples of all nations. That's what we're all about. That is our primary goal. That is our primary purpose. That is our primary mission. We are to make disciples by going, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all that Jesus has commanded, recognizing that He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Is that a mission that we're fulfilling? Is that a mission that we're carrying out on a daily basis to make disciples? Number four. Thomas was absolutely committed to Jesus. We said that he was called by Jesus. That's the case. He was chosen by Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus. But how did he respond to all of that? I want to suggest to you that Thomas wasn't halfway in and halfway out. He didn't live with one foot on one side of the fence and one foot on the other side of the fence. He wasn't complacent. He wasn't lukewarm. He was all in. He was absolutely committed to Jesus and Jesus' mission on earth earth read through the gospels matthew mark luke and john read the book of acts anytime you find the apostles being mentioned thomas is there in the midst of them thomas is doing exactly what they're doing whether it's spending time with jesus listening to jesus whether it's preaching about jesus in the gospels and also in the book of acts whether it's working miracles casting out demons healing people of sicknesses diseases and illnesses Thomas was absolutely committed to his Lord, Jesus Christ. What about us? Are we committed to Jesus? That's what he teaches us to be. In passages like Luke 14 and verse number 33, he says, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We have to be willing to give Jesus everything that we have. We have to be willing to give Jesus everything that we are. Because if we're not willing to do that, we cannot be Jesus' disciples. That's a deal breaker. If we're going to be lukewarm, if we're going to be complacent, if we're going to live with one foot on one side of the fence and one foot on the other side of the fence, spiritually speaking, we cannot be Jesus' disciples. If we're not going to be all in, if we're not going to be totally committed, we can't be disciples of Jesus because Jesus does not take anything less than total commitment and total submission. Thomas was committed. What about you? What about me? Number five, when we look at Thomas, we find that he was courageous. When you go to John chapter 11, when you're reading the Gospel of John up to that point, every time Jesus enters into the region of Judea, He's opposed by the Jews. They're making plans against Him. They're wanting to kill Him. They even tried to stone Him one time. So imagine you're one of Jesus' disciples. You've seen all of that. They've, they've tried to kill your master teacher in Judea. And Jesus comes to you and says, hey, we're going to go back there. We're going to go back to Judea. Pack your stuff. Let's hit the road. How would you feel about that? Would you be a little bit hesitant? Would you be a little bit apprehensive? I might have been. That's exactly what happened in John chapter 11. Lazarus has died. Jesus tells His disciples, we're going to Bethany, which was in Judea, just right outside of the city of Jerusalem. We're going to go to Lazarus. And the disciples, I imagine, based on what we find here in verse 16, were hesitant. They were apprehensive. They were fearful. They weren't sure about it. 
Who steps up? So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Do you see any doubt in that? I don't. When all the other disciples are scared to step foot back in Judea as they're going to be traveling there from Galilee, Thomas is the one who steps up and says, what are you guys scared for? It's time to get up. It's time to go. Let's go with Jesus and let's be prepared to die with Him if we have to be. While His expectations for the Messiah might have been a little bit off, I think we have to be impressed by His courage. He's willing to die for Jesus and to die with Jesus if it comes to that point. Do you and I have that kind of courage? Do you and I have the commitment and the courage to say, if this is where Jesus wants me to go, then I'm going to go. And if it caused me to lose my life, then so be it. You remember Mark chapter 8 and verse number 34, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. What were you doing in the first century world when you took up your cross? 100% of the time, you were going to die. You were going to be killed. You were on your way to be executed. Jesus looks at His followers then and looks at His followers today. And He says, I want you to be so committed to Me and I want you to have so much courage in Me that every day you're taking up your cross. Every day you have such a dedication and such a courage to say, if I die today for Jesus' sake, then I'm willing to do that. Thomas was willing to do that. What about us? Would you be willing to give your life for Jesus if it came to that point? Number six, Thomas was curious. Going to John chapter 14, beginning in verse number two, this is the beginning of the farewell discourse. Jesus is teaching his disciples what they need to know, what life is going to be like when they're separated from one another, when Jesus leaves them. These are perhaps some familiar words, beginning in verse number two, where Jesus talks to them about his father's house, and in his father's house, there are many rooms. He talks about how he's going to go prepare a place for them. And if he goes to prepare a place for them, he's going to come back and receive them to himself so that they can be together once again. And then you notice this statement in verse four You know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, in verse number five, apparently doesn't know the way to where he's going. So instead of being arrogant and pretending like he knows everything, instead of being ashamed and remaining silent, he asks a question. He doesn't understand, so he questions the Lord in verse 5. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He just said in verse number 4, you know the way to where I'm going. He says, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? If we don't know the destination that you're going to be at, we certainly don't know how to get there. He doesn't understand. And he has the humility, he has the honesty, he has the transparency to ask a question so that he can grow in his knowledge, so that he can grow in his understanding. And Jesus is willing to answer him. In verse number 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas was curious. When he didn't understand something, he was willing and humble enough to ask questions so that he could understand. So that he could grow in his relationship with Jesus. What about us? Do we have that curiosity? Regardless of what people might claim or how people might carry themselves, there's not a person on the face of this earth who knows everything about this book. And we don't need to pretend like we do. 
We don't need to be arrogant and act like we know everything about what the Bible says or, or what the Bible teaches. There's not a person on earth who knows every single detail about what's found here. There's always room to grow. And if there's always room to grow, that means there's going to be things that we don't understand. How do we respond when we come across things that we don't understand in the Scriptures? I think we can take a lesson from Thomas to be curious, to have the honesty, the humility, and the transparency to ask questions so that we can grow in our understanding, so that we can grow in our knowledge, ultimately, so that we can grow in our relationships with the Lord. Asking questions about the Bible Asking questions about God or how He works in our lives, that's not a bad thing. That's not a sinful thing. I want to suggest to you that it's a good thing. Asking questions is the only way that we can fulfill this command in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 21 to test everything and hold fast to what is good. You can't test everything unless you're willing to ask questions, unless we have the curiosity of Thomas. And then finally, number seven, Thomas was willing to confess his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It was eight days later. Eight days after he expressed his doubt. Remember what he said? Unless I see and touch the marks in his hands and the mark on his side, I'm never going to believe that he appeared to you. Eight days later in verse number 26, the disciples were inside again. This time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But Jesus miraculously appears to them for the second time. He spoke to the entire group. Peace be with you. But then in 27, He focuses in on Thomas. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his doubt. Jesus doesn't beat him over the head with the hardback Bible. Instead, He gives Thomas what He asked for. What did he say? Unless I see and put my hands in the spots on his hands, the spot on his side, I'm never going to believe. What does Jesus offer him? Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus gave Thomas what he was asking for. Gave him the proof that he needed. And you see Thomas' response in verse 28. He confesses his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is one of the clearest descriptions of Jesus' divinity in the entire Bible. Where Thomas looks in Jesus' eyes and says, My Lord and my God. It's personal, isn't it? He doesn't say the Lord. He doesn't say the God, even though he could have said that. He claims a personal relationship with Jesus and is willing to confess it. My Lord and my God. Thomas was willing to confess. What about us? When we go out and we live our lives on a daily basis, when we're surrounded by those who don't know Jesus and they're really not concerned about living their lives for Jesus, is this a confession that we're willing to make? Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my God. But it's not just about that confession coming off your lips or coming off your tongue. Is that a confession that we're living out? Is that a confession that is seen in every decision that we make? That Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my God. And I want to submit to Him in everything that I do. Was Thomas guilty of doubt? No doubt about it. Absolutely, he was guilty of doubt. We see that in John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. He doubted that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But I also want us to provide a defense for doubting Thomas. To suggest that Thomas 
is so much more than doubt. Thomas, his life, his relationship with Jesus is so much more than that one moment of doubt, that one moment of weakness, that one mistake that he made. Thomas is one who's been called, chosen, commissioned. He was committed. He was courageous. He was curious. And he was willing to confess his relationship with his Lord. Thomas should not be defined by just that one mistake that he made in John 20 and verse 25. That is our defense for doubting Thomas. But guess what? That message is true for us too, isn't it? Just like Thomas, we all sin. We all make mistakes. We do things we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. Maybe we've been in places before, spiritually speaking, where we have struggled with doubt ourselves. If you don't get anything else out of this lesson this morning, I want you to get this. Don't allow your life to be defined by just one mistake. That's what we've done to Thomas. And I hope that's not something that you're doing to yourself. Don't allow your life to be defined by just one mistake. Now let me say, if you're choosing to live in sin, and that's something that's just natural and normal to you, and it's a part of your life, it's become habitual, and there's no effort to repent of it, then you need to not only pay attention to that, you need to turn away from that, because you're putting your soul in danger. Don't put your soul in danger. Don't continue to live in that sin. I hope that you'll make a different choice. But I would also say that maybe all of us could relate to this at some level. You have that one mistake that you made that you continue to feel guilty about. It continues to haunt you. It keeps you in shackles. That one mistake feels like you're locked in prison. It defines you. When people look at you, when you look at yourself, that's all that you see. You've wrapped up your identity in this one wrong choice. This message is for you. Don't allow your life to be defined by just one mistake. Instead, let's learn from Thomas and his life. Let's recognize that we've been called by Jesus. Isn't that awesome? We've been chosen by Jesus. We've been commissioned by Jesus. So as we live our lives on a daily basis, let's be totally committed not halfway in and halfway out. Let's be all in on Jesus. Let's give Him everything that we have. Let's be courageous to pick up our crosses and to follow Him on a daily basis. Let's be curious. Let's ask questions about what we don't understand so that we can understand. Let's live our lives not just in what we say, but in what we do. Based on the confession that Thomas makes in John 20 and verse 28, My Lord and my God. You don't have to continue to feel guilty. You don't have to continue to feel like you're locked away by that one mistake that haunts you from your past. Allow Jesus to set you free from it. Because He is the only one who can do it. If we can help you with that right now, we'd love to. As together we stand and sing.